Welcome to Techtivation. I'm your host, Peter High. My guest today is Fred Reicheld. Fred is the creator of the Net Promoter Score. He was also the founder of Bain & Company's loyalty practice. He's now a fellow and senior advisory partner at that company, where he's worked for nearly 45 years. His latest book is Winning on Purpose, The Unbeatable Strategy of Loving Customers. I look forward to delving more deeply into the thesis behind the book on how Net Promoter Score can best be used, his learning across the years, uh, examples from companies that have used it well, and much more through uh, through this dialogue. Fred, welcome to Technovation. Great to speak with you today. Thank you. Good to be here. Yeah. And now for a word from our partner, Zoho, and the company's president, Timothy Casby. Prior to taking on his current role, he was the chief information officer of a number of companies, including Reliance Industries, Sears, and Trexon, and the Warehouse Group. He's now at Zoho, a most unusual enterprise software company, and wanted to share some perspectives from it. Timothy, take it away. Thanks, Peter. Since we started our partnership with you a couple of years ago, we have seen increase of 30 million users on our cloud, totaling now to over 70 million users in the global enterprise using Zoho SaaS platform to run their businesses. One of the reasons for this growth is continuous innovation we have focused on in bringing together disconnected and siloed processes under the platform called Zoho One. Zoho One Suite offers over 50 products to run your business. We have now powered it with Zia, our AI assistant, and Zoho's BI analytics platform. This allows users to speak the same language across departments and organizations through predictions and insights the platform provides. Learn more at zoho.com slash one. And now on to the interview. Well, Fred, I, I NPS, uh, the Net Promoter Score, has certainly had a has been remarkable in its adoption. Uh, you, you call out that two-thirds of Fortune 1000 companies use it today. Um, I want to, we'll talk a bit about its use in, in some places where it hasn't been necessarily used as it should be and uh, as we get uh, deeper into our conversation. But I wonder if we could take, take a moment here at the top and talk about the genesis of, of NPS. How did it come about? Uh, how did it occur to you that this was an important metric for businesses to bear in mind to, to determine whether or not uh, as a key ingredient among perhaps some others, but to determine whether they are successful or not? Well, it's interesting. Uh, it, it, many people have thought customers have to become the center of our business if we're going to run a, a, a great business, that people say those words, but no one had ever created a metric to make that manageable and to, to track progress toward that. Uh, there are satisfaction scores and retention rates. There are certain behaviors, but and, and of course, referrals, you know, when, when you get a referral, you know, you've done a good thing and, uh, and, and uh, want a customer's loyalty. But I, I saw the need for a, a universal metric that was just simple and easy. And, and uh, it's like, you know, the meter, it's not a magical length, but everybody uses it. So finally, you can have a useful conversation in, in the world of science. And Net Promoter has, has moved in to fill that void. We, we have a metric that now, you know, Democrats use it, Republicans use it, everybody uses it. They use it pretty poorly, but at least it's there as one common way to gauge, are we making our customers' lives better? Or are we diminishing them? Yeah, and I know um, also in the early stages of its evolution, you you call out three different uh, companies among a variety that you could, I'm sure, uh, that were from from whom you took inspiration and who were also important as you as this idea evolved. Uh, the CEOs of Enterprise Rent a Car, USAA, and Chick Fil A. And, and I wonder if you could just take in a moment a little bit of a snapshot of your experiences with the. The, uh, the CEOs, in some cases, the entrepreneurs behind those businesses uh, as to you know, what you glean from them as important lessons that impacted 
your your thought process around um, you know customer loyalty and eventually loving customers, as you put it. Well, in all three of them, I came to see that this uh, this idea of treating customers so they come back for more and bring their friends is at the uh, it's the core economic flywheel that drives all business success, at least sustainable business success. No one measures it very well. Accounting can't even tell you how many customers you have, let alone how many come back each year or how many are referring it. It's, it's as if the forces that, that accounting measures become a mindset about what drives success and, and, and profits is what accounting measures. So we think business exists to make profits go up or, well, if we make profits go up, everybody else is better off through some Adam Smithian hand. Um, these companies don't believe that. Uh, you know, Andy Taylor at Enterprise said those words. He says, we've grown from a tiny little family leasing company in St. Louis, Missouri, to the largest car rental company on earth as a private firm, never had to tap Wall Street for funny money. Um, we, we earn it the old-fashioned way. We, we treat our customers so they come back for more and bring their friends. I said, Andy, how do you do that? He said, well, we send a two-question survey out to lots of our customers after they've returned their rental car. And, and we keep track of that and we close the loop. And anytime someone's not completely happy, we have the local branch manager reach out, call them, figure out what went wrong and fix it. And so you have local learning and innovation. And, and pretty soon people come to see that, no, profits are necessary. But the language of constraints, which is satisfaction language, that doesn't work if your goal is to make customers' lives better. You want to just within the constraint of being profitable, you then want to just take the cap off and make customers love you. And he, you know, he, he demonstrates they're worth what the family, Taylor family must be worth tens of billions of dollars now with this little insight. Um, at USAA, it's a nonprofit it, it, and, and the same formula works. They're dedicated to treating, to inspiring their teams. You know, these guys are generals that lead these companies, very talented leaders. They're, the, the leader's job is to make sure their teams understand the mission, is to enrich the lives of customers, and then make sure they have the tools and the metrics and make sure they hear the standing ovations when they enrich a life. And, and that's, the, that's what feeds them at Chick-fil-A. Totally different culture, but same darn thing. Uh, the Truett Cathy said, Fred, my, uh, in Southern Baptist, we, we have this tradition of adopting uh, your life verse from the Bible, and mine was uh, a good name is to be desired more than silver or gold. I think it's Proverbs 22 something, <laughs> let's say 11. And um, I thought, wow. So that's what he thinks of, you know, turning customer problems and making them smile. That's, that's his philosophy. And uh, sure enough, it's made his family, you know, multi-billionaires and stunning success story. So it's a moral philosophy backed up by an economic reality that is completely hidden by accounting. And, and that is pretty intriguing to me since most of business measures itself and makes decisions and set priorities and pays out bonuses based on a, on a financial mindset that has nothing to do with uh, what creates a great business. Very interesting. I appreciate you sharing uh, those anecdotes, which really bring to life uh is some of the different aspects of the early portions of the work that you you, you did and some of your collaborators who were meaningful to you. Um, I, I alluded to, as you have as well, that NPS is broadly adopted, but it's also often misused. And I want to dig into that a little bit. I think that will be particularly interesting to, to uh, companies who will be watching and listening this, to this who 
who are no doubt using it in various ways as well. What are some of the most common ways in which uh, NPS has been misused and, and why from your perspective? Yeah, it's, it's sort of frustrating. One of the reasons I wrote the book, I mean, I, I feel good. Two thirds of the, at least according to Fortune magazine, two thirds of the large companies in the world now use Net Promoter. I think most of them use it quite poorly. And, and the reason is, I don't think they understand the big NPS, which is the purpose, the philosophy, the, this underlying economic flywheel that is hidden by accounting. They just take it and apply it as if it's a slightly better way to measure customer satisfaction. And, and then they make the mistake of, uh, uh, well, we don't really have the purpose that Fred says is at the core of this, enriching the lives of our customers. I, you know, I think great organizations, they don't just exist to make everybody happy and keep all their stakeholders served. They, they have a primary purpose for their why they exist. And, and for successful businesses, it's, it's to make their customers' lives better. Of course, you got to make all the other stakeholders happy they did business with you. But the reason you exist, your purpose is customers. So I almost called this system net lives enriched. Because when you touch a life, you know, whether it's a company, a team, or an individual, you either enrich the life, you diminish the life. And it's just keeping track of that balance sheet. And if you remember the purpose, you'll do the right things. But so many people have now divorced net promoter, the small NPS, the score, the technique of measuring feedback, and, and they link it to people's bonuses. And therefore, people care more about the score than they do using the score and the verbatim comments explaining the score as ways to uh, innovate and, and get better. And, you know, you turn a perfectly good metric into a target, you destroy it as, as, a, as a useful learning or an inspirational device. I see many people, and, you know, it's well-intentioned. I'm serious about this. I'm the leader. I'm going to link it to your bonus like everything else. Problem is, they don't see when you link accounting things to your bonus, there is an accounting framework and there's audits and people go to jail if they cheat on the numbers. If the car dealer says, now, listen, I know you'd had a lousy experience, but only a 10 is a passing grade. Of course, people are going to bias the system and you get goofy scores. And the customer says, they obviously don't care about me. They just care about the score. It's selfish. And that coupled with companies who think, geez, this is great. I like Fred's books. I like the ideas. We're going to report the net promoter score to our investors, to the public, like we do our accounting earnings. Great, except they have no standards for how it's measured. And, you know, what's the sampling of this? And what's the response rate? And is it right after a transaction that makes customers happy? Or, or do we ignore, you know, for an insurance company, we never send a survey to someone whose claim has been denied. It's, so they just, you know, they're making up their own vanity statistics. Those two combined have, have done more damage than I can, can explain. Then if you wouldn't mind, talk about some of the common practices employed by companies that have achieved truly remarkable results in, in NPS. You talked about some of the things that need to be corrected. Uh, you know, provide some examples. You, you also uh, highlighted some of what you drew inspiration from uh, in, with the CEOs of, of Enterprise Rent-A-Car, USAA, and Chick-fil-A in your, your earlier uh, response. What are some additional sort of common practices that you've seen work particularly well as organizations either newly implement an NPS or maybe even more importantly, given the dialogue we just had, the, 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 the Q&A there, uh, in terms of taking corrective action associated with this? Well, I think one of the best examples I use in the book is, uh, is Apple. Apple Retail was one of the earlier adopters of Net Promoter. 
And because we made it an open source platform where people could experiment and change, you know, you don't have to pay Fred to use NPS. I wish they did, but they don't. And that was a conscious strategy choice that made me a poorer man, I suppose, but maybe I've had more influence than the average person. Um, Apple did something, they linked it to their mission. Their mission is to enrich the lives of customers. They used this as the way of measuring that. But instead of getting people in trouble and rank ordering your net promoter score of every employee in the store on the break room door to humiliate the bottom quartile or fire them like car dealers, um, they said, no, this is so that our employees can learn and feel the love from their customers because we want, we want them to hear the standing ovation. So they designed it very thoughtfully. It's not anonymous. The customer you know who the customer was and, and the data is fresh. It comes within 24 hours or so of, of them touching one of the employees or genius bar or salesperson. And it comes right to that person. So it's designed to help the frontline employee hear the standing ovations and learn how to get better when there's constructive feedback. And yes, they, the store leader can see it, but it's not shared with all the other employees. They, you know, they, they'll, yes, they'll do shout outs in a, in a team huddle to give kudos to and tell the stories so that best practices are spread, but they never humiliate someone with a bad score. They know it's hard. So they create safe space for the employee. They read it on their own phone and think about it. And, you know, was this some, some customer that really was unrealistic and it's a bad person and, and I have nothing to learn from this. They can ignore it. But most often they'll say, hmm, this is a reasonable person. I'm disappointed that they're not happy. I wonder if there's anything I could do differently. And so these companies who do it great inspire their teams to learn how to love customers better and to feel the energy that comes from great service to others. You know, Martin Luther King Jr. said, everybody can be great because everybody can serve. I think he had it or he had half of it. It's not just serving others. I think it's remarkable service. It's enriching lives that that is truly the special objective and the and the, the the wonderful thing every human has. And so great leaders just use the net promoter system to help people to inspire people toward that objective and and track their progress. Yeah. I where I've heard people uh worry about this sort of feedback is uh, like the analogy of the airline telling you, sending you a message after the flight you took or the, the, the hotel uh, chain sending you the same. And the fact that oftentimes we are most uh, determined to provide that feedback when it's been a negative experience, but we don't take the time necessarily when it's been a great experience or, or been a satisfying where, where the, you know, where it's met our expectations. Um, how can companies do a, a, a good job? Of course, not muting, as you point out, um, constructive feedback that can be essential in terms of, of continuous improvement, while also providing incentives to get the standing ovations uh, when, when they are appropriate to receive. What, what, what's your advice for those who, who have some misgivings from that perspective? Well, come from this point of view, customers are sick of surveys. Mm -hmm. If you're going to ask for a survey, make it short, Make sure you've pre-negotiated with that customer about what's the right frequency and should it be email or SMS text to, you know, and how many times a year is reasonable for you. We certainly want to make it easy for you to give feedback anytime you feel compelled to give feedback. But from this outbound reminder, which we can then link to our employees and stores and products and, and learn from it, you want to have people feel like, yes, they're thoughtful with my time. 
They're going to close the loop if I give them something to act on. And, uh, and then supplement surveys with behaviors and signals. You know, how many people are calling back a second and third dime to the phone center? How many people are hanging up after waiting for you? Know, those are detractors. You know, you don't need a survey to tell you that. Get the right closed loops into the process so you learn and, and minimize that. And then I think uh, the most important progress I made in the book in Winning on Purpose was we have a new metric that you can use to hold people accountable to called earned growth. It's an accounting metric. So it's audited. It's, it's real. And, and that then it buttresses the survey process that can be so good as a learning tool. So think of uh, earned growth as just the accounting twin of survey-based net promoter and, and use them intelligently together is my advice. Interesting. Good, good advice indeed. Um, you, all, you also talk about the necessity of uh, changing from financial capitalism and stakeholder capitalism to customer capitalism. Uh, I wonder if you could take a moment just to define the term, first of all, and also how it can be implemented. It's funny. It's hard to be against stakeholder capitalism, but I am against it. I think it is fuzzy thinking. It's uh, woke to the third degree with good intentions, but you just can't serve everyone equally. You know, you're accountable to no one then. And um, I think you have to pick one of your stakeholders that is your primary reason for existing. And what I see is that the companies who win have chosen the customer as their primary stakeholder. Yes, they got to inspire teams to, to and be great places to work, and they have to return investors a, a return better than the Vanguard Total Index, or they'd have been off better off, you know, diversifying with with that easy alternative. But that's not why they exist. They exist to create smiles on customers' faces and to make their lives better. And and if you view that as capitalism, um, I sort of wondered, wonder what percentage of the world agrees with me. And so we surveyed several hundred business leaders around the world and, and asked them, what, you know, why does your organization exist? Only 10% said customers come first. So how's that for stunning that only 10% of the world agrees with me? Um, it's a, so I'm, I'm radical, sort of like uh, Karl Marx was radical with the Communist Manifesto. So I have, I have the Customer Capitalist Manifesto to fight back. And it says the customer is, you know, everything should go around making customers' lives better. And if you adopt that viewpoint, you quickly recognize, geez, we don't have the metrics or the processes. We don't organize our businesses that way. Our journalists, our business journalists have no idea how to even think about that. Um, there's a, it, it's a long road of change. It, and luckily, every company we find that has the highest net promoter score in their industry measured apples to apples correctly, those leaders are delivering the best total shareholder return in their industry. And in fact, in the half dozen or so industries where we have really good data across all the players, um, which we have because Bain created a data business called NPS Prism, which really does feedback right with monster, huge panels and all the biases eliminated we find that the only guys that beat the Vanguard total index over the 10 year period are the NPS leaders. So we're coming to a point of view that, you know, it's not just that loving customers is a good way to win. It's the only way to win where you can also treat your employees and your investors. Well, you know, treating investor well, as I've said, is 
give them a return that's better than the Vanguard total index, please. That's a radical point of view, but I, I think it's true. And, I, and I, I, I've, uh, in fact, read that you've changed your own philosophy on, on investing uh, uh, to, to reflect this change as well. Uh, having previously been a, largely an index investor, this has now ch changed the way in which you think about uh, putting your money where your where your mouth and where your where your keyboard, uh, your hands on keyboard are. I, I am a huge fan of Vanguard. I when I went to college, when I was a junior, I did a paper on uh, Jack Bogle's idea of. Uh, of index funds and not being active managers, not being able to beat the market. And I convinced myself a number of times through my life that even though that seems in, it's impossible to believe that all these smart guys aren't beating the market, they're not. Um, and, and so I was very cautious. I, and then I said, you know, these NPS leaders measured correctly, this is sort of a deeper insight into the health of a business. And, and we can see which ones have this flywheel going of customers coming back for more and referring their friends. And I think the world undervalues that. So I started investing in NPS leaders. Take the, the last book I wrote 10 years ago. It, was, uh, it listed all the NPS leaders as best we could measure them back then. The in, that portfolio has more than tripled the stock market over the last 10 years. Um, I've invested in many of those companies and other NPS leaders. I, I write about that and call it the frenzy. And it's, a, you know, it's the foster recommendation, eliminate detraction stock index. The frenzy has made me a wealthy person. Um, it, it, but that's, it's, a, it's almost a byproduct. I, I happen to do it to prove out my thesis. It's made a lot of money for me, but that's not what I tried to do. I tried to create a metric and a process to help leaders enrich the lives of customers, inspire their teams to enrich the lives of customers. But it, it, it's sort of a cool proof point. Yeah, made up for the fact that not everyone that uses NPS has to pay you for it, uh, perhaps. In some no, ways. but but I, but I the private jet is still there and it, and it makes life a lot better. <laughs> um, there, there's also a misper misperception that NPS applies differently or maybe even less in some ways to digital native organizations or to digital parts of digital interactions with customers than traditional face-to-face -face and, and, and analog means of, of uh, interacting with, with customers. And you offer some great examples from companies like Peloton and Warby Parker and Amazon uh, as counterpoints to, to those assumptions. Uh, describe some of the best practices you're seeing among digital native organizations, if you will, uh, and, and the extent to which that applies back to uh, digital immigrant organizations, as I sometimes refer to them, yeah. uh, who might wish to emulate some of the, the, the great practices of those people. Yeah, there have been a lot of naysayers uh, in the net promoter movement over the two decades since I invented it. Um, the most recent wave have been those who said, oh, it used to work. Uh, grudgingly, they say it used to work in the old economy, but now in the digital world, it's, it's old fashioned, you know, who needs this? But the guys who are actually some of the superstars in digital say, no, it's actually more valuable than it ever was. I invented it before the digital revolution, but the Warby Parkers, the Pelotons, the Amazons, they've adopted Net Promoter and use it rigorously and, and, and read the back cover of my book or inside the book, and you'll see that they, they believe in it deeply as, as a as a framework and a tool that has helped them. I think digital companies have both an advantage and a disadvantage in living this purpose of enriching lives. The good thing is 
everything is up for grabs in redesigning the customer experience to incorporate digital. Um, whether it's, gee, now I can deposit my checks with my online deposit. That's made my life better. To Zoom, I don't have to go travel to meetings anymore. I can just sit in my office and, and chat. It, you know, It's just amazing. Every single episode along the customer journey, you can think about how it could be digitally enhanced. That's brilliant. So now you can do remarkable stuff. But you can make the mistake of going into that old financial capitalist mindset and saying, oh, my purpose is to get rich and to extract as much profit from customers as I can. And digital lets you use artificial intelligence and bots and data that you probably shouldn't have to just manipulate customers to, to maximize your profits. And a lot of companies are doing that. So digital in the hands of evil people will do evil things. Digital in the hands of loving people can make lives better. And we've got that going on today. I think um, one of the very coolest things that digital gives us is we can watch behaviors and know whether we've enriched a life or not. And just by watching click-throughs and hang time, usage patterns, because digital natives are organized in a way that makes customer-based accounting simple everybody has an account number and they link all the products and services in one place. So what many legacy companies just can't do without a lot of work, these companies automatically look at customer level profitability. When you ask a digital firm, oh, what's your earned growth rate? They might struggle a little with the referral part of the equation, but net revenue retention, how many of our customers come back for more and buy more stuff? They've got that nailed. So the, the, the framework of measuring success is, is a big advantage in the digital world. Yeah, but teaching bots to love your customer, you gotta be thoughtful about that because most of our success metrics are still accounting, which measures how much value we pull out of a customer's wallet, not how much love we're putting into that customer, which is what makes them come back for more and tell all their friends to give us a try. Yeah, really interesting. As, as somebody, Fred, who has employed many people directly and has provided a lot of advice uh, to, to other executives on how they might do so, I wonder how this, your philosophy has changed over time. Now, again, uh, more than 45 years with your, your, your current employer, um, how you've thought about uh, the attributes to look for in, in, in recruiting new team members? Are there, are there changes how you think about that today relative to 40 years ago in light of this research and the kinds of behaviors you're looking to reinforce? Yeah, I've learned a lot. Um, I, I mean, I, I just started this thing out. I'm, I'm an economist by training, right? So I really, I just saw companies with higher loyalty grew faster and made more money than anybody I'd, I'd ever seen and, and couldn't be explained with traditional strategy account uh, economics and, and, and principles. So I, I saw retention was the first thing, just people come back, this net revenue retention is an important idea. But it was more than that. You say, what do leaders do to build a community of teams that actually treat people right and are committed to the service to customers and doing the right thing, even when someone's not looking? You know, you can't, can't do the accounting you know, you won't get a bonus for doing the right thing, but it's, but they'll do it anyway. So I, I think building teams of people that, that, that have the golden rule of treating people the way you'd want a loved one treated, that that's really core. 
And, and then your systems can reinforce that intense, you know, that basic uh, tendency. But you hire people who are abusive, you know, bullies, cheaters, slackers, they takers, they don't care about colleagues, they don't care about customers, they just want to take as much as they can. You got to get them out of your system, including your customers who are that way. And that's just what? Get fire customers? Get out of here. I want to save that customer. I want to retain it. No. I think the uh, great leaders understand that they need to build teams who will trust each other to, uh, to achieve the mission. And, and so the leader has to, and, and you're never going to have a happy team member unless they feel like they're a valued member of a team that's winning. And so you got to make sure they only define winning is when they win with their customers. When they see customers Lives enriched, coming back for more, bringing their friends, referrals. That's the win that you want teams to measure their, their success on. Yes, of course, there's other constraints, financial, otherwise, but, but the win is, is, is loving customers. And then the, it has to be a group who works well and you know, holds people accountable. They have to earn that, that respect and trust. We at Bain and Company, we uh, we always knew teams were important, but we almost went bankrupt in the '90s. Uh, just you know, we we were the we were the hottest thing in consulting in the '70s, '80s, um, and then almost crashed and burned because we got so fixated on economics for shareholders for the for the partners, and we got it back by getting our values back and put into systems that reinforce them. So that always, you know, 24-7, 365, we'd be leaning on values as hard as we're leaning on financial realities. Because most of the systems you make today, they're, you know, they just operate. You don't have to do anything. It takes no management effort. They just run. You need systems like that that reinforce values, like living the golden rule. And we, we came up with things like um, we have weekly huddles. But we, we cook off every huddle with a five-question, six-question survey. So people think about Hmm, what, how are we doing on each of these key dimensions? The number one dimension is uh, how happy you are with the value you're creating for your client. So it's, are we doing things for our customers that make me proud? And I'm seeing behaviors in those customers where we're winning with the customer. And then second is how likely is it to recommend this team to a qualified colleague? Are we operating as a team in a way that makes me proud and would bring a friend in who, if they were qualified? Those discussions lead to good things where teams fix their problems and identify things that need to be elevated. And then we said, hmm, we don't want to have Big Brother destroy the, the candor of these discussions and the grading system. But we'd sort of like to know at the office level, which teams aren't doing very well and need some help. So every month, all of this anonymous data, but not anonymous to the team level, it, you know, it's clustered by team. We rank order every team in our office and we can see who's having trouble. And we don't reach out to get people in trouble. We reach out to see what, how can we help? I asked a, a consultant who I knew as our, our next door neighbor's son. Uh, so I, I knew I could, he'd be honest with me and he just joined Bain. And I said, so what do you think of these huddles and the, and the uh, scores that we do with, with Net Promoter in it? He says, it's awesome. I used to do this at the consulting firm I used to work with before business school. And it was all like witch hunts and, and it was, you, you know, you never want a bad score. So there's this huge grade inflation and it's meaningless. Um, he said at Bain, we have the lowest score of all the teams in the office. This was 
Boston office, big, big place. And he said, and team, instead of hiding it, the, the team leader went to the office head and said, see, see, we need help. We need that special office space to get our people sitting together. And, and it's just, a, so it's a culture that reinforces a set of values and systems. And, and Bain, by the way, you know, not that I only, I'm half-time Bain and I'm not the reason it's a great place to work, but it is a great place to work. It's been in Glassdoor, it's number one this year. It's been number one half of the last decade. It's been, you know, it's, it's just a really special place. Why? Ask Bain teams, what's the primary purpose we're in business? They say customers. They don't say make our partners rich. They don't say great place to work for employees. Those are things that are on the way toward the mission. And it's, that makes it special. We've just got a lot of really talented people who will work together to serve customers. That, that, that's, that's the magic here. I, the extent to which there's a bit of a virtuous cycle of uh, good employee experience translating to positive customer experience, I wonder if you have a useful mechanism that you can recommend from a metrics perspective on employee lives enriched. How do you measure that? Yeah, it's a great question. And I, I, the, the one watch out I would say is there are a lot of people in the world who say, gee, we have to make sure our employees are happy and they'll make our customers happy. I don't think the world works that way. Um, there's a lot of things that make employees happy that make customers very unhappy. Um, you know, we don't have to work long hours. We don't have to really stretch ourselves and take risks with innovation and, and do the hard stuff. That, that doesn't flush. So the only way a team can be happy sustainably is when they are delighting customers, because that is where you get the true feedback that should make you happy. You know, you've made a customer's life better. You, that means your life is worthwhile. Um, and it also makes the economics work. And, and so the trick is don't get confused. My job as a leader is to inspire my teams to love their customers and make customers' lives better. That's a lot different than my job is to make my teams happy. I see a lot of people just sort of having, oh, we'll have customer satisfaction as one KPI and employee satisfaction as another KPI and we'll treat them all equal. No, dead wrong. Customers are at the center. Teams who can make customers' lives better uh, is, is the key. And then leaders who can help you know, nurture those teams and communities and hold them accountable, not just to treating each other right on the team, but then to delivering the goods for customers that starts this customers coming back for more and bringing their friends. And so I think the most important metric is what we use at Bang. I mean, how do you feel about delivering great results for your customer? Are you happy and are we making progress toward that? Every team should be thinking about that regularly. Net promoter scores from customers and signals of purchase. And you know, there's a lot of ways that you'll know if you're winning with your customer or not. But then I think you also have to ask, you know, would you recommend your team as a place to work? Would you recommend your team leader as a person to work for? And we ask those at the right frequency with the right level of anonymity to, to, to protect. So you, know, you want honest answers about your leader? Well, we ask that twice a year at Bain and it's anonymous. We make 100% sure that it's the right people getting a vote, but then those, you know, what those votes are, that, that's, that determines people's eligibility to be promoted. So it's a huge deal, but that's not fair if you just did that every six months. So we have this weekly huddle 
where we have a similar question that's much more of a conversational and it's coaching, it's homework, it's how do we get better, including me as a leader. So you got to get all of those right. It's not just one magic metric, but it's a, a philosophy of how you can help people build teams that, and, and, and earn uh, valued roles on those winning teams. Fred, I'm also curious, uh, in an organization uh, that wishes to foster greater degrees of, of customer centricity, where a relatively small percentage of the employee base actually have customer interactions, how do you think about that? Uh, how do you motivate the, the, the right people? And are there broader motivations or, or means of measuring that for, for those who have indirect touch points uh, to the ultimate customer experience? Yeah, I should say it, business to business is where NPS started. Uh, Bain was the first company to use a net promoter feedback process that I, I, I was aware of. <laughs> I think I'm right because I invented it. And Bain actually started using it. And it's hard. It's hard in many ways because, you know, there's decision makers, there's influencers. I mean, who in the client organization, there's the CIO, the CFO, who should be giving us feedback and how frequently, how do we make sure that's not just sort of off on the side, but it actually, it's part of our account management process and it, it it's done at the right time. And it's followed up by an account planning meeting. And we, you know, you have to be very thoughtful. You don't just send out a bunch of surveys, which sadly, too many people have done. Then the, this question of how do I make internal employees who are serving other teams that are then serving customers, how do I get them connected? This is where I think leaders really have to step up. Everybody has a customer. If it's an internal customer, then you have to be clear about that they are the customer and that you're going to give them feedback mechanisms so that they can let you know how well they're doing and when you have enriched their life and made their career better. And there has to be the right degree of anonymity to, to stop sort of the brown nosing and the fear and favor issues. And I think most companies have been very sloppy about how they are going to evaluate and, and, and recognize the, the star internal department so they feel the love. And, and therefore, they focus on cost. We know how to measure costs. We know how to measure productivity. And those metrics get outsized attention inside a business. And, and truly doing something innovative and remarkable and enriching your colleagues' careers, it's just, that's just too much risk. How's, what are we going to solve that? I think it's a philosophy statement by leaders and a set of systems that reinforce that philosophy. And I am sort of astonished at how modest the progress is on that dimension uh, to date. I can point to a few people doing a good job, but no one doing a great job yet. They don't really, I mean, if it's a customer, make sure you know when you've delighted that customer and, and done something remarkable that they're going to talk about to all their friends. Net promoter scores are being used in so many different ways. And I'm curious, Fred, uh, what's your perspective on how the scores are currently being used across organizations? And to what degree do you think they're an accurate reflection uh, of a company's culture? I think the uh, companies who get the highest customer net promoter scores, honestly, creative, you know, no cheating, they almost always have very happy fulfilled, I won't say happy, I'll say fulfilled employees, because it's often really hard work. Um, occasionally, there's an anomaly like Amazon, at least in the press. But when I, you know, I interview 
managers who worked at Amazon and who are still there, they're pretty positive. Um, there are some cultural issues, and I think they're they're maybe getting on top of those. But it's it's not. I, I'm very skeptical of people who just measure employee happiness and then try and solve it as if it were unrelated to, to customer happiness at, at the core. And I don't think the path to making a great company is by leaders focusing on making their teams happy. I think it's by leaders who are focused on helping their teams achieve means, lives of meaning and purpose where they hear the standing ovations when they earn them from customers. Because in the end, for most companies, only customers can make your teams happy. Leaders can facilitate that happening, but you know, if the customers aren't giving you kudos and innovations, your happiness is short-lived in the employee setting. That's why unions, I should get in a lot of trouble here, but I think unions have the wrong objective function if they're just trying to make their, their, their you know, they worry about their employees as the primary stakeholder. No. Customers are the primary stakeholder. And if you really loved your employees, you would help them understand that and help them uh, earn that uh, love from their customers. I want to thank you so much for that, Red. I, uh, Fred. I, I wanted to, uh, you, you've mentioned in a couple of your answers, uh, the importance of teams making customers' lives better. I think it's interesting you, you use lives. You don't talk about their companies or their outputs, or you're, you're actually referring to, it sounds like a very personal uh, aspect of what you're describing, uh, obviously within the context of the where they're employed, but uh, uh, or the business that they do. Talk a bit about that nuance. Uh, I, I assume that that language is very intentional, so I want to get to the, the the heart of it, please. It is. I think uh, people do special things for other people. You know, it's it's in, individual relationships are the core of everything. They, they can compound into big organizations uh, for sure. And organizations create the community rules and culture and values. But, but uh, I remember uh, we had a guy that worked at Bain for a few years. It was a very effective uh, military leader um, named Pete Dawkins. He was a, a real superstar football player, Heisman Trophy winner, went to Army. And he, he talked to us about uh, what, the, what military had understood about uh, what motivates uh, troops to, to really do these heroic, amazing things. He said, well, you know, it's not really for the flag. That's part of it, you know, patriotism. And, and but those are, those are pretty uh, conceptual, distant, theoretical ideas. It's, and it's, and it's not even for the family back home and the white picket fence and the, the safe community. Those, those are motivators, but that's not the core. He said, uh, people, People do heroic things for the for the people next to them in the foxhole. Uh, it is the the human lives that are depending on them for important things to stay alive and to 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 lead a, a dignified, uh, prosperous life. And I and I think it's that tight connection that inspires re, the right kind of behaviors. So yeah, we, I try to bring everything back to individual people. You're you know when you touch a life, you enrich it or you diminish it. And keep, you know, keep track of that objective and let's see how you're doing. And the, most, the happiest people in life, I think, are the ones who are enriching a lot of lives because they not only legitimately feel good about making the world a better place, 
those are easy words to say, but let's measure it, that they know they're doing it. And the economic consequences are so good when people love you and loyalty is earned. Well, great. Well, Fred Reicheld, uh, the book, as I mentioned before, is Winning on Purpose, The Unbeatable Strategy of Loving Customers. A really fascinating dialogue uh, on this. Congratulations on a great, uh, yet another great book on this. And thank you so much for sharing uh, in greater depth the some of the insights behind your lessons, a bit about your your broad sweep uh, uh, of your career uh, and, and the impact that you, you and your ideas ha- have made. Um, I can only imagine you feel great satisfaction for the, the customer lives that you've impacted. I feel good. I mean, this book is masquerading as a business book. It's really a book about how to live a life. And if you read the the, the dedication is to my two uh, young granddaughters, who I hope will see this as a life's lessons of, you know, who you hang with, it's everything. So, you know, as a customer, make sure you think about what companies you want to be customers of, employees of, leaders of, investors, and then choose those loyalties wisely because they really do come to not just guide your life, but they, they define your legacy. And, and so, yeah, this is more important than just uh, making money next year. This is a, a, a philosophy that I think will serve people well in, in helping them lead winning lives. Thank you again, Fred. It's been a pleasure speaking with you. Thanks, Peter. Take care.